Hiya, Doola Doola Sarah here bringing you Birthfold Passions, Listening Without Prejudice, a podcast where I speak to people as passionate about helping create positive pregnancy, birth and early years experiences for all. In this amazing episode with Stephanie Ernst, we discuss many difficult subjects, including diagnosis in twin pregnancy and selective reduction. I'm here with Stephanie Ernst, the founder of the TAP Support Foundation, and I'm going to let her introduce herself. But full disclosure, she is my friend and number one fan of my WhatsApp voice notes. Um, So over to you, Stephanie. Tell me a little bit about yourself and tell everybody that's listening a little bit about yourself. Certainly. Uh, my name is Stephanie Ernst, and I am the founder of Tap Support, like uh, like we were just told. But I think really what comes down to is that nine years ago, I was diagnosed with spontaneous taps, twin anemia polycythemia sequence. And as a result, my identical twin girls were born with stage three taps. Um, what led from there is a series of events that led me to starting a foundation and working towards raising awareness of TAPS, but also working towards raising awareness of things like the long-term effects, long-term outcomes, um, and also rare diseases in general, because this is a really important area that's often forgotten. So my passion lies with talking about TAPS and twins in particular. However, I also talk about um, how the impact of a rare disease on families. Brilliant. And can you just tell us a little bit in fairly simple terms, what is TAPS? Sure. TAPS is a disease that affects mostly monochorionic twin pregnancies. There are times when it's been recorded in out-of-the-box cases, but you know, for the for the general purpose of it, it happens in monochorionic twin pregnancies. So twins who share a placenta. And what it is, it's a fault with the way that the the connections are in the placenta. So uh, there is a more common version, and it's called twin-to-twin transfusion syndrome. This is uh, where there are large connections in the placenta, and there's a really sudden rush of blood from one twin to the other, causes things along the lines of fluid levels, discordances, and other complications. TAPS, though, is caused by really tiny connections in those placenta, and they're less than one millimetre thick. So um, it's a slow trickle of blood. So there's not really many indicators of it on ultrasound. And um, it's a very controversial diagnosis because it's only 16 years old. It was uh, first named in 2006 and described. Uh, There are two forms of it. One is after laser surgery for twin-to-twin transfusion syndrome. The other is spontaneous TAPS, and that's the version that I had. Uh, Both versions have very high mortality rates. Uh, They also have severe short and long-term outcomes. Mm. So my role in life is to raise awareness of this and talk about the screening and also just to talk about it in general so that people have it on their radar and that it's not twin-to-twin transfusion syndrome, that it is a separate disease. Mm -hmm. And tell me, because I've invited people on to talk about the things that they are feeling really passionate about freely, Mm. and I I want to invite you to speak about everything and anything that you feel passionate about today in regard to what you do and you know what you would love where you would love to see improvements perhaps yeah and I think the really the biggest thing that needs improvement in times and this is where my passion actually lies is this uh, the the concept of diagnosis Mm -hmm. now at the moment we have diagnostic criteria for TAPS they're still being refined but you know we've only had them in place for a few years and there are various studies talking about the efficiency and the efficacy of how it's designed and you know breaking that down efficiency is how um how accurate the readings are and the efficacy is also is at the accuracy and how many times it's picked up on ultrasound Mm -hmm. so you know there is controversy about that but realistically when we come down to it we do have diagnostic criteria And it is really important that we look towards things like the Leiden staging system, be it the old one or the new one, Mm -hmm. um, which is how TAPS is diagnosed, by the way. There is a staging system called the Leiden staging system. Can you tell us a bit about that? 
Yeah, sure. It's based on uh, the readings on the brains of the babies. So with mm-hmm. twin to twin transfusion syndrome, it's diagnosed on fluid levels. Mm-hmm. So they measure the fluids in the babies. With TAPS, there are no visible fluid signs. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, TAPS by definition is uh, tr- is transfusion without the presence of um, high and low fluid levels. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> when we look at that, that's a very big difference between TAPS and twin to twin transfusion syndrome. Um, so in utero, it's diagnosed with the Leiden staging system, which is uh, using in the brain, there is a rather large artery in the brain called the mid-cerebral artery. Mm-hmm. And that checks flow. The, the, the flow in there tells us how far, uh, what's happening with the blood. So if it's moving too fast, that's a sign of anemia. And if it's moving too slow, it's a sign of polycythemia. And if you have one twin that's anemic mm-hmm. and one twin that's polycythemic, then that's generally a really good indication that there could be taps happening. Okay. And, uh, you know, that's one of the big things about uh, the diagnostic criteria is because there's a couple of different staging systems, sometimes doctors are very hesitant to um, diagnose it because there's not a lot of clarity. If I can, if there is a doctor listening or a nurse or an advocate who is listening, uh, the Leiden staging system, the new one using Delta MCA PSV, so the difference between the readings is really quite accurate. It has over 90% accuracy and efficacy. So just keep that in mind. If you are hesitant or you know someone who is hesitant, use the new Leiden staging system. It's more accurate. <laughs> and, where, and, where, and they can find the... Uh, information about this on your website right they can absolutely find it and um, they just have to look for the mca doppler okay and doppler ultrasound is a great thing because it's kind of like a speeding camera Mm. and so what it does is it checks how fast the brain is uh, blood is going through the brain Mm -hmm. so in some cases you know it might like i said it might be moving slowly it might be moving fast um and the other thing to remember is that if you have one bad reading for you know one reading where it's not quite right Mm -hmm. it's not anything to panic about because unlike twin to twin transfusion syndrome taps is actually based on a looking at a picture from a couple of days so it's more about looking at it over time because it moves so slowly it's really more about establishing a pattern rather than there is a massive fluid distance at discordance we need to act now Okay. You can look at it and because also those readings are not always accurate you know like when you What is acting now? Sorry. Sorry to interrupt, but what, what is a- acting now? Explain what would that be? Uh, acting now is uh, with twin to transfusion syndrome is sending them off and getting laser surgery done. We know that laser surgery is the best treatment for twin to twin transfusion syndrome. So we send them off, get a referral to a secondary or a ter- sorry a tertiary medical center mm-hmm. where they perform the surgery. And generally... Um, it is it has a fairly high accuracy uh, high rate of um, helping there's a survival rate of about 80 percent for both uh, for one twin and 60 percent for both mm-hmm. those numbers of course are pending the center the technique yeah. use you know don't quote me on that but that's generally accepted um, the survival rate though is quite good after laser surgery for TTTS but for TATS we don't know the best treatment and that's one of the other reasons why doctors are hesitant to diagnose it because they don't know how to direct patients mm. but what we actually do know is that there are ways to treat TATS and it should be looked at in relation to a whole picture talk to the patients about um, the options look mm-hmm. at how far along they are in their pregnancy and look at it, you know, look at all the factors that are surrounding and make a decision based as a team because, you know, you can use things like laser surgery using the Solomon laser technique, which is a newer technique, laser technique. And that mm-hmm. instead of just a blade, it, like instead of just cutting off the, the vessels, it draws a line along the placenta. Yeah. But in t- TAPS, of course, there's no fluid differences. So it is technically more challenging. Um, the second thing is obviously you can just watch and wait what happens because yep. like I said, it's such a slow process that you can yep. just watch it and track it and then make a decision. Yeah. Uh, once babies hit viability, so around that 24-week mark, yep. you can also just uh, also try uh, deliver them. 
I mean, yeah. it's not ideal, but, it, you know, it, it, premature delivery is not ideal, but it is an option for treatment. You also have things along the lines of, um, I think this is really now comes down to um, diagnosis and why we all have the right to a diagnosis. Now, yes. December 16th last year, uh, so 2021, the, the UN actually passed a resolution and there's the rights of a person living with a rare disease. Mm-hmm. And one of the fundamental rights of the, a person living with a rare disease is the right to a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And I think that is such an important piece of information to talk on, to pick up on, because in our case, in because TAPS is often missed, and I always say it's not only, it, you know, TAPS is a controversial diagnosis, but it's also a missed, often a missed diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because... Uh, guidelines uh, don't support screening for TAPS. Well, yeah, I, I know that this is a UK um, UK based. So um, in the UK, you're not, you have nice guidelines, mm. and in relation to TAPS, they're not so nice. And I think <laughs> I'm going to make a lot of enemies for saying that. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> Realistically, the nice the nice guidelines when it comes to screening for TAPS, they're not so nice. No. The only reason that they recommend um, Dopplers on the midcerebral artery is when there is a size discordance of more than 25%. Mm. Otherwise, it's left to the individual trust as to whether they screen for TAPS or not. Mm. Now, the only problem with looking for a size discordance of TAPS is that it only happens in around 50% of TAPS twins. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing. So not every TAPS twin will have a size discordance. Mm-hmm. Um, and just fun fact, out of that 50%, 90% of the time, it's the donor twin who's smaller. However, we have cases where the recipient twin is smaller. So we yeah. just don't know enough about it. Mm-hmm. Um, however, the other thing is, is that size discordance is not part of the screening criteria or the diagnostic criteria for TAPS. So that's really the area where the NICE guidelines let down um, TAP screening. They only recommend it after laser surgery for twin-to-twin transfusion, mm-hmm. which uh, is rarer than spontaneous TAPs. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people go, how is that rarer? It is. Blood transfusions done in utero, but again, they can be, they only buy time mm-hmm. because you're not fixing the core problem, which is those little tiny connections, but rather you're just adding fuel to the fire it's not quite the right analogy but you are giving the donor twin the twin that's anemic more blood but eventually that will pass through to their siblings so yeah it's um it buys time if you're at like 28 weeks and you want to make it to that magical 30 it can buy you time um that's really one of the things and unfortunately there is also another option and that is selective reduction and That can happen, of course, before the viability dates and cutoff dates. And it's generally only in those cases where one twin is really, really ill and their rate, their survival rate is not great. So so selective reduction, just tell us a little bit. What is that? That is where you the where basically one twin, they will um, uh, coagulate the cord or they will use a radio frequency or something like that to stop the cord of the baby and the baby will pass or die. Okay. And um, it, it's a last resort. And mm. I think that's a really, really important thing to talk about. It is always a last resort. It's used only when one twin is so sick that they cannot, um, <clears throat> you know, that it viable, that their life, you know, either they yeah. have a very poor quality of life or there are signs that they will pass anyway. So that's, um, that is a very important thing to talk about, but selective reduction should also be discussed as an option for families because, you know, we need to make informed decisions and we need to know about all the options. And if a family says that, you know, that reduction isn't their choice, that's fine. Yeah. We just need to, it's also about respecting the families that have come to that decision that that is their um, it's not an easy up. decision to make for, for no, you know we know that not, yeah. absolutely not and that's what makes it really challenging because there is such a it's very stigma. there is it's very prominent at the moment there is such a stigma around um termination of pregnancy for medical reasons and mm. there shouldn't be you know mm. it is a decision that's made by the families however yeah. it exists we have to talk about it but in the same respect, in the name of informed consent, we should also be talking about it as part of our medical treatment plans. And yeah. we're all human. We yeah. all go into those appointments and we're already getting bad news. And sometimes that will mm. be the only thing we take out of an appointment. Mm. Mm. But, 
we need to really honestly have that open discussion about um, all the options, including selective reduction. And if that's not your jam or that's not an option for you, that's your that's absolutely fine. And yep. if you go down that path, it's also absolutely fine. We need so- to remove the pigments. Absolutely, absolutely. I don't know anybody that's made that decision lightly, and it's no. there's so much yeah. shame that they feel that the you know people yeah. that have made that decision feel, and it's it's really it's it, that it's terribly sad. It's really really sad that people yeah. feel so judged by making a decision for the for the for their best own best interest and for the best interests of potentially saving one of their twins or one of their multiples that's exactly right and I think like we could talk for hours about the topical mm. loan but yeah yeah um, yeah realistically though is that selective reduction only comes up in the cases where TAPS is so advanced that it is really honestly uh, there is not a lot of other options so yeah when one it- and that actually brings me back to the, the topic of diagnosis because it is so important that we go through the, diagno- the diagnosis process. Mm. And it's not only just for that in utero stuff, it's for the external and for the long-term stuff because it, that, um, that diagnosis affects you for the rest of your life. And yeah. Before you, know, you go on to that, can I just, just sorry, before you go yeah, on to yeah, that, just, just that, sticking with that, just for a second and before we move on, mm-hmm. just because I've got a question. Um, when we talk about the, the, the treatment options, do you want to say a little bit about the evidence that so- laser surgery works? Well, that's the whole thing is that there isn't actually a lot of evidence that says laser surgery works. What it is, it is the it is the treatment that absolutely treats the root cause of the problem, which is to cut those tiny connections. But we just don't know that it is the best treatment now. And okay. we are very fortunate, though, that there is an international clinical trial happening right now that is testing um laser surgery against conventional treatments like the rest of the treatments so uh, it tests against blood transfusions and expectant management and early delivery Uh, and that's uh, happening and you can look that that is on the tapstrial.com website very fascinating study and um, lots and lots of information is coming out from that but also we also need to remember that Um, If a doctor says to you that laser surgery is the best treatment, then that's not correct because we just don't know that. Yeah. Uh, So it is very, we have to be cautious about what we say because we don't know the best treatment. And unfortunately, that's not what a lot of people need to hear. (laughs) Uh, So we have to be cautious. Um, Laser surgery for TAPS is technically more challenging because Mm -hmm. in conventional laser surgery you can uh, because the fluid differences in the babies mm-hmm. you can actually see the the line of the placenta like where the the connection points are but because there's no fluid differences in taps they have to actually create an artificial ttts environment and wow. so it makes it more challenging you have to move a little bit more slowly there have to you have to really consider a lot of things so that's why I'm always very cautious to talk about the fact that um, cautious to talk about treatments for TAPS because we don't know the best treatment what we do know is that laser surgery is definitely an option Mm -hmm. but it's important also to point out that we don't know it's the best option okay okay so carry on with where you were going with long term yeah sure and I think this is really now comes down to Um, diagnosis and why we all have the right to a diagnosis. Now, December 16th last year, uh, so 2021, the the UN actually passed a resolution and there's the right of a person living with a rare disease. Mm -hmm. And one of the fundamental rights of a person living with a rare disease is the right to a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And I think that is such an important piece of information to talk on, to pick up on, because in our case, in because TAPS is often missed, and I always say it's not only, it, you know, TAPS is a controversial diagnosis, but it's also a missed, often a missed diagnosis mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because uh, guidelines uh, don't support screening for TAPS. Well, yeah, I, I know that this is a UK, um, UK based. So um, in the UK, you're not, you have nice 
guidelines mm -hmm. and in relation to TAPS they're not so nice and I think mm -hmm. I'm going to make a lot of enemies for saying that <laughs> not at all <laughs> realistically the night the nice guidelines when it comes to screening for TAPS they're not so nice no. the only reason that they recommend um, Dopplers on the mid-cerebral artery is when there is a size discordance of more than 25 percent Mm. Otherwise, it's left to the individual trust as to whether they screen for TAPS or not. Mm. Now, the only problem with looking for a size discordance of TAPS is that it only happens in around 50% of TAPS mm -hmm. twins. That's the first thing. So not every TAPS twin will have a size discordance. Mm. Um, and just fun fact, out of that 50%, 90% of the time, it's the donor twin who's smaller. However, we have cases where the recipient twin is smaller. So we yeah. just don't know enough about it. Mm -hmm. um, however, the other thing is, is that size discordance is not part of the screening criteria or the diagnostic criteria for TAPS. So that's really the area where the NICE guidelines let down um, TAPS screening. They only recommend it after laser surgery for twin-to-twin -twin transfusion, mm -hmm. which uh, is rarer than spontaneous TAPS. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people go, how is that rarer? It is. Um, when you look at uh, TTTS happens in around 15% of monochorionic twin pregnancies. Mm -hmm. Laser surgery then comes into the place and post-laser taps happens up to 16% of the time. Mm -hmm. So again, you're going, but 16 is bigger than three. However, you're talking about a very small subset of a small subset. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it is rarer post-laser taps is rarer. It took a long time for myself to get that around my head, but it is rarer than spontaneous tests. Mm, mm, mm. Um, you know, this, this, that's one of the big things though, is that, you know, they only recommend screening for MCA Doppler um, for TAPS after laser surgery, or if there is a size discordance. Now, it's not part of the diagnostic criteria for a size discordance. So if you are listening and you have any control over the NICE guidelines, can we please reassess that bit? That would be <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> let's right. think about it logically call me call me uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but one I of the things sorry one of the things I think that we talk about a lot because it, it they are mm. considered rare diseases but within the monochorionic twin community they're not, not rare they <laughs> probably happen more than we think about because yeah. Uh, when you think about it, what's the thing that you do when you get a diagnosis of anything? The first thing you do is you look for a community of people who understand what you are going through. Yeah. And so, of course, you're going to have a higher concentration of cases within the twin communities. And that's mm -hmm. why there are so many great Facebook groups out there and online communities that talk about these uh, conditions and these um, these uh, diagnostic, you know, the, these things, because they are very supportive. And I actually encourage people, actively encourage people, when you get a diagnosis, look for these communities online, be it that you go to Facebook, be it that you go to online forums, be it that you go to Reddit, look for these online communities, take, take in all the information you can, mm -hmm. and then take it back to your doctor to talk about. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because yep. there is a lot of misinformation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But the, you know, within our communities, it's not a rare disease. It happens so often. And that's because we are a condensed group. Mm -hmm. But in the grand perspective of things, they are a rare disease. And that's where um, these, the UN resolution is so useful because we do have the right to a diagnosis. Yeah. And one of the important part about that diagnosis, of course, is then you can have the correct treatments and you can have the correct follow ups. And you can have the best quality of life. And that's something that's so important in that UN resolution is that it's all about improving the quality of life for people with a rare disease diagnosis. Okay. And what I want to talk about, though, is really like how that, you know, that's a great big, you know, utopian idea. Mm -hmm. But there is a really neat, big need for the correct diagnosis. And there is a common misconception. And you see it on websites and it's on hospital websites. TAPS is a form of twin to twin transfusion syndrome. I just made a note to ask you about that. <laughs> you can F and Jeff, Stephanie. Yeah, you can set me off just by saying that. It, and I, you know what? In the scheme of things, it is, it's, it's into twin transfusion. Right. Um, but twin to twin transfusion syndrome is fluid discordances. And that's the way it's been for over 100 years now. Mm -hmm. And prior to 2006, everything that was um, something wrong with twins was categorized as twin to twin transfusion syndrome. Mm. 
But now with, um, in 2006, obviously tax was named. Then in 2007, um, selective fetal growth restriction. So size discordances between twins was mm. also named. And, you know, so there's been real deviations. So that overarching umbrella of twin to twin transfusion syndrome is actually really redundant. It's not an over, it's not a form of it. And even when you look at Orphanet, which is the codes for rare diseases, mm -hmm. you see um, twin to twin transfusion syndrome, you see TAPS and you see TRAP sequence, which is a very rare complication. Um, I don't have time to go into that one. And then right over on the other side, there's actually selective fetal growth restriction. And that's actually a separate arm of twin complications itself. Mm. It doesn't even fall under that umbrella. Um, so it's really quite interesting to see that. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> and that's because we know so much more about twins. But when we look at it, and you know, often babies are born and they're red and white, and people are like, oh, this is intertwin, this is twin to twin transfusion syndrome. Mm. It may not be. Yeah. And this is where it comes down to you need that correct diagnosis at birth. Yeah. Uh, because once you start breaking it down and doing the correct testing, there are very big differences. Mm -hmm. um, Twin-to-twin transfusion syndrome, post-laser surgery, we know has about a one in five chance of some form of neurodevelopmental impairment. Mm -hmm. And that happens with, um, <clears throat> that's happening with both donor and recipient twins. It's fairly steadfast. It's a great, it's a fairly universal cystic. And those twins should be followed up. Mm. Absolutely, with neurological testing and physio, uh, physical therapists. And, and why like that. Why is that? To check the development, to make sure they're developing on track because these twins have such a, even uncomplicated monochorionic twins. This is one of my favourite statistics and it's I don't know why it's a favourite because it's not a very positive one. Yeah, yeah. But even 7%. So you're looking at about 1 in 14 sets of monochorionic twins will have some form of neurodevelopmental impairment. Okay. And that's why it's so important to follow these twins up. Mm. Um, but twin transfusion has that high rate of neurodevelopmental impairment after birth. And there is cerebral palsy and uh, other things that happen. But then you look at TAPS and that's where it actually becomes very interesting because that statistic goes from one in five to just over one in three will have oh. some form of mature, uh, some form of neurodevelopmental impairment. That's for spontaneous TAPS. Post-laser TAPS has very similar outcomes to twin-to-twin -twin transfusion, post-laser twin-to-twin transfusion. The reason being is that they obviously had twin-to-twin -twin transfusion in utero. Okay. However, having said that, with post-laser TAPS, it is a very frightening statistic. One in four donor twins will pass wow. after, with, with post-laser TAPS. Do they know why? Uh, it, it's basically just, I think it's the challenge of being, you know, it's such a challenging environment because you're so mm. chronically anemic. These babies often have blood like rosé wine mm. or, you know, the, you know, we're not talking about proper thick blood. We're talking mm. about rosé wine. So they're not getting enough nutrients. They're not getting enough oxygen around their bodies. Right. This is one of those things. Mm -hmm. But, you know, then we talk about um, <clears throat> when we go to this thing and that, you know, we now talk about, one in, I would say one in four TAPS twins has mm. that high rate of neurodevelopmental impairment. And it's not even. Donor twins are one about 18%, so one in five. Donor twins get up as high as one in two. So about 44% mm -hmm. of donor twins will have some form of neurodevelopmental impairment. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, so that's a very, very different statistic. So we can't be talking about them being the same disease when the outcomes are not the same. But then we also have to look at, there is also this horrible statistic that one in eight spontaneous types donors is born deaf. Wow. And yeah, it, it's not a form of deafness. It's found on normal hearing testing either. You need to have a specific form of hearing testing. So you can pass hearing testing in um, the NICU. Mm -hmm. But if you're not getting this um, BIRA or AABR hearing testing in the NICU instead of the normal uh, OAE testing, you will not you will not detect it. Okay. There's a very slim chance you'll detect it. So this is why it's so important to have that correct diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And you know, it, it's really donor twins that are the the anemic twin that is really really impacted in this um, disease, whereas in twin-to-twin -twin transfusion syndrome, it's even. 
Yeah. Both twins are impacted by uh, spontaneous taps and imposed laser taps. That donor twin is a really, really high risk compared mm-hmm. to their 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 recipient sibling. Okay. And so that's another reason why that correct diagnosis is really important. But then, you know, from my own personal experience, I was diagnosed in one hospital and my girls were in, born in that hospital and their paperwork at that hospital said, um, said TAS. But we were transferred to my local hospital and mm. the paperwork says twin to twin transfusion syndrome. <laughs> and so when we were going and pushing for long-term follow-up testing, they were going, yeah, but they didn't have this. They had this. And so this is something that we actually see a lot of my story. Like that's my personal experience, but I've seen it happen with other stories as well. Yeah. And, um, you know, that, the, you know, they've said, no, it's twin to twin transfusion syndrome. There's nothing to worry about. They're on the outside. So you have nothing to worry about now. And it's like, well, actually, no, mm. um, that's not true. They need, even if they had twin to twin transfusion syndrome, they should be followed up. And if I can really, really emphasize, if you have had a diagnosis of twin to twin transfusion, TAPS, or selective fetal growth restriction, you really, really should be pushing for long-term follow-ups. Yeah. Because that is so important. Our twins really, really need those follow-ups. There is new research on prematurity that shows that these twins, that um, babies born preterm, and we're looking at 20, uh, sorry, 60% of twins are born before, you know, before term. Yep, yep. Uh, yeah, so we're looking at that. Before, before 37 weeks when they would normally be yep. offered, yeah. Yeah, uh, so the, the 60% twins are born before that time. Yeah. And that's really so important to just re- to keep that in mind that, you know, prematurity itself is a risk. Mm. So we should be following these twins up at least to school age. Whole other, whole other rant over there. But right. Yeah, you know, but having that correct diagnosis in your paperwork means that you have access to the correct um, long-term follow-ups. So those neuro, those neurological checks, the development checks, things along those lines. You also have access to the correct hearing testing. If we just go back a little bit to when babies yeah. are born and they are different colours, which there's a discordance yeah. in colour. So you've got one that's red, one that's very white. Um, yeah. What, why is it important? that we know whether or not it's sudden onset TTTS or TAPS? Yeah, and that's a really, really good question, Sarah. The reason is, is that the wrong treatments can kill. Right. And that's really obviously with acute twin to twin transfusion. So this is something that happens either just before birth or during delivery. There is a sudden rush of blood from one twin to the other, and it can cause a red and a white twin, and they look very, very similar to tax cases. Mm-hmm. That anemic twin really has, um, they have no fluid in their system. They have literally given all their blood to their sibling. Okay. So they are, you know, they need fluid, they need fluid infusions, they need blood transfusions, and they need those basically immediately. Yep. But with TAPS, that donor twin they they have fluid they have like they have blood in their system it's extremely extremely thin and there's not a lot to it but if you give them a sudden infusion of blood or fluids you can actually kill them because you're overloading their system mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so that's a really important thing and you know again if you're a doctor or a nurse or a, a, an operating room assistant or even a doula if you have yeah. a red and white twin at birth flip that placenta over and look at the back of it. This is the quickest way to establish whether you're looking at something like acute twin to twin transfusion syndrome or you are looking at TAPS because in acute twin to twin, there is absolutely no color difference. In TAPS, you will see a white side and a red side exactly like the babies. Yeah. That is such an important thing to just remember. But another really important thing to do is that flip that placenta over, look at it and then make your decisions because in TAPS, that donor twin does not need sudden um, <clears throat> blood transfusions or anything like that. It's a really much more controlled situation. And it's because also, they've become quite used to being anemic, and absolutely, it, and yeah. they just and they also have um, fluid in their system, so their blood is quite thin. But they have blood going through their body. Yeah, sure. It's just um, in that acute twin twin transfusion. It's not. They have literally had it sucked out of them. Mm-hmm. So. That's where they need that rapid response of that the fluid and the blood 
Mm-hmm. Um, and another thing that neonatologists should also be aware of is that TAPS twins and particularly donor twins are born with very, very low sugar levels. Very, And this is um, something that happens in babies. They do generally do have a drop in their glucose levels after birth. However, mm-hmm. in TAPS twins, it's quite prolonged. So they need to really be monitoring those glucose levels after birth because that's something that's really, really important. It's new research. I'm very, very proud to say that uh, TAP Support actually funded that research. Um, so it, it's kind of a big, I, I like to mention it quite a bit. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, this is one of those things is that we really need to be aware of that. But again, it comes down to that correct diagnosis mm-hmm. so that doctors can be checking those blood levels. They can be looking, administering the right treatment, and they can be also monitoring those sugar levels after birth. Okay. So that's a really important thing, but it all really comes down to getting that correct diagnosis and also making sure that correct diagnosis is written on the paperwork. Yeah. And even if you don't believe that I've convinced, if I haven't convinced you (laughs) that TAPS isn't a form of TTTS right now, even if you Mm -hmm. believe that it is still under the overarching umbrella, just write TTTS and then put TAPS in brackets beside it. Yeah. Because there is another reason that is important. When people are going for long-term follow-ups, if they don't have the correct diagnosis on their paperwork, insurances will not cover mm. the correct mm. testing. Insurances will not cover the correct follow-ups. They will not cover things like physiotherapy. Um, you know, if you need an autism diagnosis, yeah. the testing, they will not cover that because you do not have that written on your paperwork. Mm. So even if you do not believe me and I have not convinced you that TAPS is not a form of TTTS, just put it on the paperwork as a mm. side note mm. because mm. that is so important for these long-term follow-ups. And again, there is this misconception that prematurity ends at age two and there is not a lot of follow-up for any baby who is born preterm after they walk out of the hospital. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this is such an important thing to talk about is that you know, it doesn't just stop when the cords are cut. It doesn't just stop when the babies are born. That diagnosis sits with you for the rest of your life. Yeah. And that is one of the reasons why it is so important to have that correct diagnosis. And it comes all back to that UN resolution. You know, you have the right to a diagnosis. So even without TAPS, because you, I, I know that you know a lot about this, but obviously, you know, um, the long term so we there is this misconception for prematurity in general that we're at two or at four developmentally yeah. um there is no significant sort of evidence of the prematurity when we're talking about prematurity just prematurity yeah. alone what are the long term there is so much that is a, a long term outcome prematurity and this is another thing that really really makes my you know makes me sad that there isn't um this isn't considered and that you know there is this magical age two where everything cuts off and babies are adjusted there's actually research now that shows that these children now when children who are developing normally or just below normally at age two when they get to school age that's when the problems actually start showing and they drop dramatically in how they look mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. how they're performing mm-hmm. and it's it, they're not really sure there's a hypothesis I think that it's the pressure of school and the change in the environment and you know that they have to perform mm-hmm. that this happens and I can tell you now from my own experience this is what happened to me mm-hmm. at age two my girls would develop normally we were released from the prematurity follow-ups everything was going fine they were just they were sitting on average got to age four and my girls were kind of like going yeah you know what we don't they don't have full sentences they have speech delays Mm. um they're not really at the same level as their peers and we Mm. were always reassured it's fine it's prematurity they're twins you know the speech delay is normal and it's not (laughs) spoiler alert it's not and you know but there is such a need and the long-term outcomes of prematurity I'm not an expert on this I'm learning progressively I have some wonderful friends within the prematurity Mm. community who are helping me understand this but you know it is a lifelong diagnosis, and and, again, and, and I th- I think so for sorry to interrupt, but I I think so too for 
their immune systems. There is this yeah. misconception that their, that their immune systems catch up by uh, two as well. I don't know who yeah. came up with this age, um, but I can <laughs> tell you as a mom of premature babies, they, um, they catch everything. They, yeah. I've got four children and they, their immune systems are nowhere near as robust as their siblings. N- yeah. Nowhere near. Yeah, and that's the whole thing is like there is so much that we don't know about prematurity and there are wonderful organisations out there who are really pro- promoting the the rights of prematurity. Big shout out to EFCNI. I love you guys. Um, <laughs> but, you know, this is one of the things they're really promoting that aspect of prematurity and it's got to be a lifelong diagnosis and this is something that needs to be considered when they're two, when they're four, when they're eight, mm-hmm. when they're 16, when they're 20, when they're 50. Mm-hmm. Because literally most of the research cuts off at age two yeah and we are now discovering that these these premature infants have got um these former premature infants have still got high rates of like cardiovascular disease of um lung problems i mean bronchopulmonary dysplasia is very a real risk for these people there is you know blood pressure problems did you know that if you have premature babies they should have their blood pressure checked um and from from you know, after even after they finish their follow-ups, premature children should have their blood pressure checked wow. routinely. Really? Yeah. Oh, I just I never told you that one, obviously. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, I've made a <laughs> note of it. I've made lots of notes. <laughs> yeah. 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 This is one of those things that really needs to be followed up. And um they should because they are at risk of hypertension and um, issues with blood pressure later in life. But these are all things that we are learning now about prematurity. So it, it really is a case of prematurity should be a lifelong diagnosis. So more but, so in terms of TAPS, what would you, what, what, what is the long-term, you know, if you were to list off the things to look for <laughs> long-term? Well, the, the short answer is we're still learning. Okay. We don't know for sure. What we do know is that donor twins in spontaneous TAPS have a very high risk of neurodevelopmental impairment. So mm-hmm. Because I've used that term and I've not explained it, I will. Neurodevelopmental impairment is not only things like blindness and deafness, but it can also include cerebral palsy mm-hmm. um, and uh, learning delays, but also things like autism, uh, ADHD. It, it really is anything that impacts the brain. Mm. So that's just a very broad term. But 44% of donor twins are impacted in TAPS spontaneous taps in some form in the in their brains Mm, mm, and that's that's their cognitive functioning eyesight hearing you then have um and it's they're four times more likely than their recipient they're their sibling to have an issue that's really the big thing wow um the second one is is that in um post-laser taps even if they've had post-laser taps it should be treated exactly like um, TTTS and they Mm -hmm. should have long-term follow-ups because they still are at risk of those delays and those problems yep um this you know the third thing is that deafness and that is a really important takeaway is that one in eight donor twins is born profoundly deaf like that's bilateral deference in both ears Mm -hmm. and they're born deaf and that's the one that's the ones we know about we see more and more cases coming forward um And that it is not, the type of deafness is called auditory neuropathy spectrum disorder, it is um, or ANSD. Mm. It is um, virtually undetectable on the regular hearing testing that happens in hospitals. Um, and that's called OAE or EOAE, just depends on where they're from. Get it, it's really important that they are tested with either BERA, B-E-R-A testing mm-hmm. or A-A-B-R testing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, those are really important tests that should be done on those donor twins because early intervention is critical. Um, We do know that donor twins are affected in the short term with um, problems with glucose and they also have high lactic acid levels when they're born. Mm -hmm. So neonatologists should be watching that and also monitoring that when when they're in the NICU. Um, anecdotally, and this is there is no evidence supporting this, but this is an anecdotal piece. We find also that donor twins are anemic for prolonged periods after birth, and people are reporting up to two years. Wow. So it's really important that they are watched for that anemia as well, and that they've given nutritional advice and support. And like I said, that is anecdotal. There is no scientific evidence that supports it, 
but in our community of uh, in our community of TAPS twins, we find that there is extended periods of anemia. Okay, so yeah. in in terms of um, I don't know if if you've got any more to say on that before I ask a, que- a question. Like, no, I, well, I have plenty more to say, but you know, <laughs> I want you to, you know, yeah. um, but you can you can say what you want. This is your space, you know, um, yeah. but. Um, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is um, who's supporting the parents? How can we support the parents through this? What, what, yeah, can, you know, that's a really good one. And the answer is, is that obviously it comes through down to the community you have around you. So mm-hmm. I would absolutely encourage anyone that is diagnosed with a fetal condition to reach out to support networks and find out which works for you. There is, you know, I'm not going to say you need to only join me because I will only give you the best advice. That's not correct. And it's not right. We're not. I might say something like that, but yeah, (laughs) (laughs) you know, to me, I, I, I just don't feel comfortable saying that because, you know, we aren't for everyone and that's fine. But reach out to communities, reach out online. Um, also make sure that when you are diagnosed with a, a complication in your twin pregnancy, because let's just talk about twin pregnancy in general. Mm, if, yeah. if you were diagnosed with a complication in your twin pregnancy, talk to the doctor not only about what the long-term outcomes are and the treatments and the options and things like that. Talk about what support they're going to, what support is available to you in their network. So that mm-hmm. can be social workers, it can be counselors, it can be psychologists. Mm-hmm. You do need that extra support Mm. if you're working with a doula great they're a great lifeline as well they can be a support for you and I really encourage doulas that if you don't know much about what's happening approach organizations yourself Mm. we're more than happy to talk to you I will talk your leg off I think I've proved that today (laughs) Um, but I will help you with outreach and things like that find online communities and this is something I'm very passionate about is that doctors will tell you not to google I am going to this is the one time I will tell you to go against medical advice do google it yeah I've written an article about it do google it it is so important because you will not only find communities but you will find information but what I also tell you is that anything you hear in that community or anything that you read online you should take that back to your doctor and discuss it with them because yeah. there is a lot of myth and a lot of misconception out there. Mm-hmm. Um, reach out to organisations who support um, prematurity, stillbirth, um, because let's talk about that. It, there is a high there is a risk that mm-hmm. one baby or both babies could die. Mm-hmm. Reach out to stillbirth communities. Reach out to um, online communities. Reach out to um, web websites and talk to them about it as well mm. get as much information and make yourself comfortable with the diagnosis and but also get that additional support and with families this is something that I find is really interesting is that a lot of families really try to keep things positive mm. when someone is given a difficult diagnosis don't you know do try to keep it positive that's really good don't turn it into toxic positivity though yes yeah Turn it into, I am so sorry you're going through this. I don't know what to say. Own that. Yeah, yeah. How can I support you? And sometimes that support can just be as simple as saying, I don't know what to say. How can I support you? And that may just open a floodgate. You know, there's also that whole thing about um, getting a coffee, taking them out for a coffee and letting them talk. Yep. Because we need to process our feelings. And this yep. is such an important thing. And again, <clears throat> that diagnosis is really a difficult thing to get. Yep. And sometimes we just need to talk about how that feels. Yeah. 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 <coughs> and also a point, you know, if you are supporting somebody or a family going through a difficult diagnosis, that you yourself can reach out for help because. Yes. You don't need to start from a, a place of, you know, uh, unknowing. You can become informed and also be supported in how Absolutely. best to support. And I've had that happen a couple of times where a grandmother or a mother has reached out to me. I don't know how to, I'm mm. just, my granddaughter has just gotten this diagnosis. I don't know how to deal with it. And I'm always like, great, let's talk about it. Mm. Um process it um inform them about the diagnosis talk more about it this is all the really important stuff that needs to happen Mm. but um you know you I I don't exclude anyone from my community because you are a grandparent or um Mm. or an aunt or an uncle that's not right 
Mm-hmm. The closest, closest people are the ones that support uh, can be the best support because they already have that familiar ground. Yeah, yeah. And, and I also, yeah. Sorry, oh, carry on. Yeah. No, no, go on. No, I, I was just going to say it's um, you know, a psychologist is great because they're anonymous and they're not directly involved, so you can have that level of letting out all the letting out all the anonymous stuff. But sometimes it's that person that's closest to you that has the more contact. Where would you go for information? Obviously, you can come to my website. I am quite happy for you to come to my website. That's www.tapsupport.com. Mm-hmm. Um, we will give you the information. We have information from doctors and we check everything. We fact check everything. Everything is updated regularly so that you have the latest developments. But honestly, do a Google search. When you find information online, read it, absorb it. Look then I want you to be critical. Look for references. Mm-hmm. What are they referencing? Is the information less than five, 10 years old? Mm-hmm. Because that is such an important thing to consider because the advancements in um, research are phenomenal. And I can tell you that from experience. My girls mm-hmm. are nine. And what I what we have discovered about TAPS in the past nine years mm-hmm. is mind-blowing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Take any information you read online and take it back to a professional and discuss it with them. I'm not going to say don't go to this website, don't go to that website, because I think that's really important is that when, again, I just talked about it, you need all points of view. Okay. You need to have absolutely that uh, broad point of view. But when it comes down to it, the information you read, you should always discuss it with a professional. Yeah. Discuss it with your birth worker, discuss it with your doctor, discuss it with your psychologist, discuss all of it. Look at how they present their evidence, look at the information they provide. And I think this goes for any kind of website really related to birth. Look at the evidence they provide, look at how old that evidence is. And look if anyone else is saying the same thing. (laughs) I'm asking the people that I invite on uh, to talk about things that they're passionate about to name the podcast. What would you name this podcast? Oh, that's a good one. Um, You have the right to a diagnosis. And that is you have that fundamental right to know what's going on and that it is a lifelong thing. So what if it something along the lines of taps? Yeah. You have a right to a diagnosis. I think you have a right to a diagnosis would be better. Yeah. You have a it doesn't right. have to be taps because it's a speci- it's not specific. You have the right to a diagnosis. Okay. And yeah. Perfect. Great. Thank you so much. <laughs> That's okay. Anytime, Sarah. Ah, bless you. All right. See you. Bye. Bye. Wasn't that great? Thank you for listening to Birth World Passions, Listening Without Prejudice. Today's episode was created for entertainment and educational purposes. I hope you found the information shared useful. The views and opinions expressed by my guests are always their own and may not reflect mine. Until next time, bye.